The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. Kia ora and welcome to another episode of Climate Matters. This is an episode where we have the fourth question put before mayoral candidates in Nelson and Tasman and we look forward to hearing what they have to say. I'm Lindsay Wood, I'm from the climate strategy company Resilience Limited and Climate Matters is brought to you by Fresh FM, the top of the South's community access radio station. At the end of the episode, I will give you details how you can listen in different ways to the podcasts and to the the radio show. But in the meantime, I want to dial back to what we did briefly at the start of the first of these four questions, and that is just give a little bit of an insight into the Nelson region's single transferable vote system. So here's the little clip from the first episode of these four with the mayoral candidates. I do want to just give you a little heads up in regard to the elections and Nelson's single transferable vote system. I'm not going to presume to give you a lot of the inside detail, but a couple of comments and a reference to where you'll find more information. So the single transferable vote allows you to put in priority order every one of the candidates for the category you're voting for, whether you're in a ward system or a general system, whether it's for the mayors. So you put your priority or preference sequence for everyone except don't put a tick against anybody you don't want to get in because the way the STV or single transferable vote system works is that potentially any vote that you allocate as a second choice or third or fifth choice could potentially become some help to that person getting in as they work through the way the votes are redistributed to give not only everybody the maximum um, impact from their voting, but also to make it as equitable as possible. So if you want more information on that, I suggest you Google Nelson City Council STV or Single Transferable Vote. So to pick up on question number four, Question four is evaluating the cost of climate initiatives. And the first up for that will be Mayoral Hopeful for Nelson Region, Rohan O'Neill-Stevens. And here's the question that I posed to Rohan and then to all the other candidates. In reports dealing with climate-related initiatives, there are often comments such as a particular course of action not being cost-effective or not making economic sense, and yet there is almost never reference to the time frame being considered, and almost never comparisons with the cost of not taking action, which specialists like Lord Nicholas Stern of the London School of Economics highlight are generally orders of magnitude greater. This is often exacerbated by the imbalance of higher upfront costs being needed to realise the longer-term benefits. Over what timescales do you think the costs and benefits of climate actions should be best 
evaluated? And if you were elected mayor, how would you reconcile the often unresolved conflict of prioritising funds now for benefits over a much longer term? Here's Rowan O'Neill-Stevens' take on that question. Thanks. And I think that in Tetoihu, we're actually really well placed for this and that we have a 500-year strategy, our intergenerational strategy, which is already looking at economic and social development and the risks of climate change. So in some ways, we've already started to, to, to as a region, look much further ahead than what local government is used to doing. And we need to see that time frame falling down into our local government decision making. And it's not just that we'll be spending now for future generations. We have tools to share those costs uh, with everyone who will benefit from them. We already do this with all of our large infrastructure projects where we are, where we use debt to ensure that the costs are paid off across a, the time frame of that asset to make sure that everyone who's benefiting from it is sharing the cost uh, to develop that. But we do have an obligation to future generations to take action now. And whilst that may not be a directly quantifiable action, morally that sits there with the knowledge that we want to be good ancestors, we want to pass on a community and a city that we can be proud of and that we can, you know, look our grandchildren in the eyes and not feel shame for what we've handed down. But again, these investments and actions that we will be taking, particularly in the next decade, don't just have to have a benefit for a hundred years down the track. They can be benefiting us now by, as I've said, opening up our economic opportunities, um, supporting livable incomes and cohesive and, and happy neighbourhoods and making sure that our people now and into the future are going to be well prepared for the challenges that are to come. Thanks for that, Rowan. Now let's get on to hear what Matt Laurie has to say about the question of the cost of climate initiatives. Yeah, it's a challenge, but I think the first thing we have to do, Lindsay, is think about how we pitch our climate response. Like this issue of the imbalance of upfront costs is actually less of a problem if the projects that we're talking about actually benefit people for multiple reasons, not just climate change. I'll give you an example. Um, Wakatahi are talking about, well, they have said that so within 10 years they want to do a renewed seawall around our waterfront. Now, that doesn't just represent adaption and um, present a huge opportunity for mitigation. It's good for transport. It's good for the economy. It's good for resilience. It's good for recreation. Saving the, the waterfront from the sea will also have real cultural benefits so, so I think sometimes we get hung up on the imbalance of upfront costs and see that as a reason to, to not charge ahead with some things. I, I really think it's important that everything we do, we say, this is how it's going to benefit you. This is how it's going to benefit your city. This is how it's going to benefit your kids. This is how it's going to benefit the economy. And 
it has massive benefits for our climate change response as well. So that's the first thing I'd say. In terms of how we evaluate those sorts of projects, then I think we need to do it at least on an annual basis because so much of our success will be defined by public take-up. So, you know, if we're, um, you know, if we're, if we're doing things in terms of trying to get people to uh, get more into active transport and um, they're not working, then I want to know within a year whether or not they're working so that we can pivot to a response that does work. Um, I think that one of the problems with human beings is we're just not equipped to, we're not wired to respond to threats that are 20, 30 years away. So uh, like I said, if we can go back to these things that benefit everyone and they have a climate response and we can measure them on an annual basis, that will really help us go forward. Thanks very much, Matt. Good to hear your views. Now we're going to benefit from the insights from Richard Osmiston, just recalling that Richard is a candidate for both Nelson and Tasman mayoralties. Great, great. Okay, part one, borrow, and I said this, and I've, I've still got the newspaper cutting from 2013, Lindsay, and it was on the front page of the Nelson Mail, and I said to Rachel Reese, who beat me in the mayoral election, do what you have to do as a decent human being. And if that means borrow $150 million on behalf of the people of Nelson, do it because you will never have to pay it back. The money is made up. It's fake. It's a complete scam. It doesn't even exist, whereas climate change and its ramifications are real. <laughs> so the first thing we could do is borrow unlimited amounts of money because it doesn't even exist and it will all be written off when we enough of a critical mass of us get to realize that we've just been scammed for the last 200 years, you know, probably more. So in the short term, borrow whatever we need to do. Don't worry about the cost because we'll never have to back and we'll do what's actually necessary to be responsible human beings. With the scientific knowledge that we have today and the technology and the equipment that we have, diggers, concrete, you know, scientific research, satellites, etc., we know what to do. And then it all stops when it comes to the pretend tokens that somebody from another country won't let us borrow at ridiculous interest rates. It doesn't make sense. You know, much of this has come from doing school presentations, which I did a lot of you know, 10 years ago in Nelson region. And most of the time I just sat down and shut up, Richard, listen to what the 14 year olds at Nelson College say, because they <laughs> still think clearly. And it's so obvious to them. We've got diggers, we've got concrete, we've got gravel. Why, why is it a problem? And it's only a problem when it comes to the pretend mm. token. So that, that, that's the first, the, as regards prioritizing funds, just borrow the money and do it. It's easy. And we will never have to say it back, <laughs> pay it back. And, um, yeah, somebody said uh, it doesn't make economic sense. And, I mean, I find having those two words in the same sentence is, well, it would be hilarious if it weren't so tragic. And, of course, you know, he's right, the cost of inaction is exponential isn't it and so while we argue about these pretend tokens numbers on a computer screen we're actually destroying our own future it's i don't know I, i'm actually lost for words lindsay as how preposterous it is and it may be at some point that some people well, i don't blame individuals this is just the nature of capitalism but really it's it's reckless it's i would say it's negligent actually the harm and the damage that is being done now when we have the information that we could do it a different way, makes that unforgivable. 
Now it's the turn for Mike Harvey, a Tasman mayoral hopeful, and his comments on the cost of taking climate initiatives. Well, I think this is an interesting question, actually, Lindsay, because, you know, it deals with the two things that I've said already earlier on, which is I think there's a couple of fallacies that exist around, you know, around green technology. And, you know, those fallacies are that it's too expensive and it doesn't work properly. And, you know, and when you when you inject into the answer here that green um, technology works equally as good and it's just as cost effective as the other technology, then it takes the need for this question away. And I think that's the thinking we need to shift. So to answer this question, I mean, I, I see the timeframes that we need to measure the implementation of our of, of our region's growth against is the timeframe that the planet's going to give us before it self-destructs. And so that means we have to start now and, you know, 500 years, you know, we have to look way out. There's no point just looking to tomorrow. We've got to take some drastic action now. And, um, and I feel that the technology's there, there's a wave building and, and it's, and, and, you know, I'm a capitalist by nature. I love growth. Mm. The reason I'm running for mayor is because I've just had enough of the mediocrity and the unwillingness to actually stand up and be counted for us as a region. That's another story. The thing is that I believe we need to start injecting um, serious green solutions into our planning programs. And, and, and that's not even about time. Like I say, time will be determined by what we do, you know? Mm. And so we have to have a very long view. Thank you, Mike. Now it's the turn of Tim King, who's going to give us his insights into evaluating the cost of climate initiatives. Over to you, Tim. Right. Um, look, I th the costs, I think we're very good at, at identifying costs. We're not so good at identifying value. Uh, and I think that's the challenge. And it's not just in the climate space. So that's an infrastructure investment generally. Uh, so... And we've got a good example locally, and we're going to face more of these challenges in the future. The, the Waimea Dam project, um, in the initial 10 years of conversation, most people were supportive of the concept of storing water for the long term, looking at something intergenerational that was going to address issues for 100 years plus. The challenge became particularly acute when you have to work out who's going to pay for that today. Uh, mm -hmm. And... That is the case with pretty much all of these major investments in, um, in infrastructure generally, but in climate infrastructure particularly. So my personal view is, and the reason I'm, I, you know, I was a supporter of the dam project and I, I am a supporter of the investment in infrastructure generally, is that we need to look that 50, 100-year time horizon. Um, the Tito Ehu Intergenerational Strategy, which has the tagline of being a good ancestor, uh, I think is the way that we have to look at most of these investments that we're being asked to make, uh, whether it's as a council, a community, um, or the government, because it's very easy. And what we've done for 30 years is put off a lot of these big conversations and big infrastructure investments. We're still living on investments from generations ago, uh, and we're going to have to bite the bullet and invest significantly, not just in infrastructure, but in all sorts of solutions. So whether that's planting initiatives um, that have a long-term time horizon, whether that's looking at the way that we um, deal with deal with waste, 
whether it's putting the cost of things up front as opposed to at the end and the stewardship programs that central government's been, in my view, I think very slow in rolling out, mm. um, to put the cost of disposal uh, or recycling or reuse at the start when you purchase something as opposed to at the end when you dispose of it. So all of those things um, are going to need to be done. And the only way to look at them is to look at them on that 50, 100-year kind of time frame. Um, it's a bit the same with the investments that we talked about earlier in terms of energy alternatives. We tend to look at, you know, people tend to look at them, then it become, they look at them as, a, as an emissions off, um, improvement, then they become a business opportunity, uh, and then quite often what you find, and, and a classic example is wood pellets and biofuel in Europe, most of which comes from the southern states of America, the wood. Mm. And then it's shipped and transported. And because the way, and, and so much of this is about accounting, it appears. Um, and so you read the government reports from around the world and how well they're doing. And then you read NGO reports, which actually go, well, yeah, accounting wise, it looks quite good. But in actual impact, it might not be nearly as good as it looks. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another huge challenge. So for me, it's identifying value as opposed to just cost. And it is looking at that 100 year time frame in terms of what we get back as a return in the wider sense, not a financial return, but a, a return across all the measures that we have to look at. Many thanks, Tim. Now we're going to hear what Ali Cook has to say about the cost of climate initiatives. I think we have to be constantly actually looking now at climate change, and that is upgrading infrastructure, looking at what will happen into the future with developments, new developments, how we go about them, learning from what is actually happening in the current weather events, um, just much of what we've just talked mm. about, drainage mm. infrastructure, etc. Um, we have to prioritise now. Um, it, it, it is, you know, people talk about the COVID is nothing compared to climate change, right? What's happening on the planet is mm. is the biggest thing out, and unfortunately, that's been a sideline for climate for mm. climate action. Really, everyone's been worried about COVID, but you know, climate action is a bigger climate change is a bigger issue than COVID will ever be, and so we need to. We need to prioritise funding into improving infrastructure, into looking at the way development um, is being done um, around infrastructure and what happens in weather events in those particular places um, and looking long-term at the retreat processes, which is probably more at a um, central government level than a uh, mm. local government level. Prioritise funding for, for infrastructure um, for, for continuing to upgrade our infrastructure in Tasman. And I think we've done, like I said, I think that's, you know, been done pretty good, you know, but um, we didn't use all of our engineering money is my understanding. Like, so we should be actually out there just looking at every culvert that we can make bigger, every pipe, referring drains, fixing stop banks. Like right now, the stop bank obviously broke on hmm. the river. So, um, you know, so obviously there's a problem there, which is, filled up filled up the planes the other day so mm. you know, all of that all of that stuff is really really important for climate change and for coping for people being able to cope with severe the, the increasing severe weather events that will happen mm. um, you know coming forth so um, I think that yes we do need to prioritize any of that infrastructure that actually helps us not be in the situation now that Nelson's actually currently in um, with infrastructure issues that have not coped mm. 
don't think anybody ever expected that to happen and maybe it's given everyone just a little bit of a wake-up call. Thanks very much, Ali. Now, isn't it great to hear the views of all sorts of different uh, mayoral candidates to the same question and to see where they're all coming from? Some listeners may have been a little surprised that I didn't give a commentary at the end of each episode dealing with a particular question. And the reason for that was that each episode was really quite full with an opening comment and then questions from a number of the, uh, sorry, answers from a number of the candidates. So I'm going to take this chance now that we've had all four questions answered, that I'm going to comment on both some of the issues that arose and also very briefly on what I took from the different candidate perspectives. So in terms of the issues, one of the issues that I think was expecting to come across very widely but was only selectively picked up was the issue of public transport and decarbonisation. And I think um, Rowan O'Neill-Stevens and Tim King and Matt Laurie were really the ones that really flagged that. And uh, so that was a little surprise. It wasn't more generically picked up, even though it was briefly mentioned. Then I think uh, another one, and this was very telling, I think, was a lot of people made comments about the importance of communication, the importance of getting better input and consultation from the community and from citizens and getting a bottom-up rather than a top-down sort of approach. Now, one of the things I found very interesting about that was that that really echoed what many of the climate specialists also said we needed to do when I was interviewing them. So that's a, a theme I think we should take very seriously. The energy responses, I thought, were a little bit underwhelming. Um, with Okay, lots of people talked about possibly solar and so on. There wasn't a great joining of the dots between needing a lower energy society and using less energy in our systems and so on, except the public transport aspect pointed to that, and I think Tim King made a mention of it. Um, one or two talked about growth as though it was a desirable thing without acknowledging that it had a major downside from a climate point of view and that to me was a, a quite an important shortcoming. So there are some of the key issues that came through to me. Um, now I'm going to go through quickly and talk briefly about each of the candidates and how I what I took from what they said or in some cases what they didn't say. So Rowan and Neil Stevens uh, struck me as both as, as someone in his early 20s I'm astonished at his A, grasp of the issues, and B, his aplomb speaking about them. I think he's a, a person with a very good, his head in the right space. He ticks a lot of boxes for me. He was one of the most holistic um, presentations in terms of the range of issues, both for human and physical and uh, so on. So I think uh, hats off to Rowan there. Matt Laurie also had a very good grasp of the issues. Matt is also a Nelson candidate. A very good grasp of the issues. I think Matt also showed his seasoned time in the council and knew the sort of connections between a lot of the issues and um, and maybe some of the uh, the bureaucracy and how to work with that. So I ticked a lot of boxes with Matt as well, and he he along with Rowan Champion Public Transport, Richard Osmiston, he is a candidate for both Nelson and Tasman and, as I understand it, four other electorates. Um, I think he had a, quite a good range of insights into the climate issues, 
But what he did with them puzzled me because they were all directed at his no-money um, voluntary labour policies, which I don't think he made a good case for, and I didn't really see how they wound up being applied through a mayoralty that he was standing for. So I'm not sure that he did the the the, the electorates or himself any great favours when the gap between um, the, the climate knowledge and the money-free policy he advocated. Tim King, the existing Tasman mayor, I thought really did very well. He, he actually showed greater breadth and depth in some of the issues than I had expected. And I have respect for Tim anyway. So good on you, Tim. I think after Rowan, I saw him as probably the most holistically oriented of the, um, the candidates. Uh, I was a little concerned at a couple of things that came through as, as compromises. And uh, in a way, compromises is the art of politics or politics is the art of compromise. But I think we're in an era where there are some issues we can't afford to compromise on. And I think the shortcomings of the future development strategy that Tim touched on would be a case in point, which I think is a low point of this year's uh, bureaucratic processes in our region. That brings me to Mike Harvey, who is uh, a, a, has a, an, a, an enthusiastic and infectious way of speaking, um, a fairly rhetorical approach, which I think unfortunately camouflaged the fact that he didn't have that good a grasp on a lot of the issues. He was reasonably candid about that in some respects. I think he um, he only had a limited and slightly cliched approach to to the climate and environmental issues. He came across as someone who championed growth without realising the, the big environmental and climate downsides of it. And Mike struck me as somebody who wasn't really a group player. He wanted other people to gather information and then him make the decision on what should happen with it. So I'm sorry, Mike, I really enjoyed talking with you, but I wouldn't rate you in the climate sense as a from a candidate's point of view. Ali Cook was interesting. Ali, I thought, had a really good grasp of a lot of the climate issues in areas that quite surprised me. She's definitely walking the talk in her own life. Um, and the thing that let me down a little bit was that when she translated her knowledge of climate issues into what should happen on the ground or in the community, I thought she was very selective in what she had in mind. She spoke a lot, for example, about drainage systems and sure we need drainage systems and and the recent um, storm events have highlighted that like never before but I don't think we can rest at all on that sort of case so I was disappointed that Ali wasn't standing as a councillor as well I think she would have made an outstanding councillor but unfortunately she's only up for the mayoralty. Now I'm going to give you options for how you can listen to this uh, this program in different ways because some of them are in um, condensed form and some of them are in full interviews. So if you want the full interviews or links to other information like the background music or the full schedule, then please go to the Resilience website www.resilience, that is R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-Z, resilience.co.nz and there you will find buttons that will link you to all the information I hope you need. Alternatively, you can go to Fresh FM, and of course you're listening to Fresh FM now. Fresh FM is the top of the South's community access radio station. It broadcasts in Blenheim on 88.9, to Eastern Golden Bay on 95.0, 
to the Nelson CBD on 107.2 and across the Nelson-Tasman region on 104.8. It also streams to the planet on freshfm.net and podcasts of Climate Matters and of other locally produced shows are available through freshfm.net and through the accessmedia.nz app. Well, that brings us pretty well to the end of this episode with question four to the mayoral candidates. But next week, we have the compilation of a magic climate wand issue that all the candidates can put forward. What is the climate strategy they would conjure up if they were given a magic climate strategy wand? And then, as a great wrap-up, we have a session with a panel of five local climate-savvy people from all sorts of walks of life to people still at college, right through to people who are well and truly retired. So we do hope you can join us for that and get their insights and various opinions on it all. In the meantime, thank you so much for your company joining me for this episode. Kia kaha for the climate. The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the Top of the South's community access media station, with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.